we have a passage we'd like to read. It's a bit long, but it's a bit important because it's the Bible, it's God's Word. Daniel 3, verses 1 through 30. Hear now the Word of God. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the heralds proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery 
furnace. And who is the God who shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadmach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, 
Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of God. That's a lot of oxygen there, huh? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you this morning and we pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds that we would understand what you are saying through this narrative. What you are saying through this true historical account. What are you saying to us, Lord, today in 2022? We pray, Lord, that we would understand your word in its context. And we pray, Lord, we would apply your word in the context in which we live. Lord, we pray you would anoint these lips of clay that I may preach as never to preach again, a dying man to dying men and women. And Father, we pray that you would anoint the ears of those who hear, that they would hear with their hearts, turn and obey you. This we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, since I have to do this, let me just drink my final sip of water. I have a hole in my heart. That was my earliest understanding that I had a birth defect. My pediatrician listened to my heart and told my poor, concerned parents that their baby had been born with a hole in his heart. My pediatrician was Dr. Rossi, a gentle Italian-American man. He was handsome with a voice that had a somewhat melodic quality to it. He reminded me of Tony Bennett. In my view, he chose the right profession. His bedside manner was perfect for the scared child who had to go to the doctors. His office was in Lemonster in a basement of all places. They had toys out there for you to play with, but I wasn't taking the bait because even at a young age, I was the one who knew too much, I observed too much, and I could draw the inferences. I knew it wasn't good. Dr. Rossi told my parents, apparently in response to concern about the prognosis of their baby boy, that he could live to be 90. That was about it. Nothing they needed to do, avoid, pray about, or light a candle for. They didn't question my doctor's prediction of the future in the early 60s. I think few questioned doctors back then. There was no internet searches. There was few malpractice cases. Doctors had authority. 
It was a great time to be a professional. But a fearful person is not a trusting person. You know that. He could live to be 90. What does that mean? Doesn't it mean that he could not live to be 90? Now, Dr. Rossi didn't say he will live to be 90. No physician or mere mortal could do that. Only God knows the number of our days. Right? Yet, I thought my heart defect was the greatest tragedy of my life. I was afraid to die young. Why me? Why did this happen to me? I thought about dying young when I was in elementary school and I saw the fear in 1967 of the first heart transplant by Dr. Christian Barnard in South Africa. I was afraid of dying young when I went out for the football team when I was 15 and I was put aside and examined by a physician because he has a hole in his heart. I was worried about dying young when a life insurance physician told me that this heart defect could make my heart wear out. That's not good news for a young man trying to buy life insurance. I worried about it when one physician so sensitively told me that there was a time bomb in my chest. And I asked, why? And he said, bad luck. I worried about it when my dad had his first open heart surgery and a patient was a young man and died on the table right before my dad's surgery was scheduled. I watched his wife get the news and run out of the waiting room in tears. I watched my dad die from complications of heart surgery the second time. I worried about it when my first child was born. Will I live long enough to see her grow up? I worried about it. Will I live long enough to see my grandchild, grandchildren? I responded to an altar call in an evangelical church. It was the first church I attended after getting saved a young man came, put up his hands on me, and said, God's going to heal your heart. I took that to mean that God would heal my heart without any open heart surgery. Less than 10 years later, I was laying on a surgical bed in Cleveland Clinic, having my sternum broken open and having open heart surgery. Did my faith fail? Did I not have enough faith? Did God make a mistake? Did God forsake his child? Someone once said, listen, beloved, having faith is a necessary step toward one of two things. Being healed is one of them. Peace of mind, if healing does not come, is the other. 
either one will suffice. Daniel 3 teaches us that since God is sovereign, we must put our faith in him as we stand before the fire that is in our life, whatever it may be. It may be something different for you. It may be some medical issue, some relational issue, a financial issue, a mental issue, some issue. Faith is obedience to God's sovereign commands. And second, faith is trust in God's sovereign will. Do you trust in God's sovereign will even when you go through the fire of adversity? I find it very interesting. This song sounds like it doesn't belong in a church. It was written in 1675. Some of you know it. It's a hymn. And it says this, Whatever my God ordains is right. Though now this cup and drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all unshrinking. My God is true, each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. In pain and sorrow shall depart. I can tell your spiritual maturity by how you respond to the adversity that will surely come into your life. If you are bitter, if you resist God's providence, if you complain, if you hate life because you're this and not that, then there's something amok with your Christian faith. Now, this doesn't mean that when you have the opportunity or ability to get out of some hole that you're in, that you don't do it. But when you don't, when the cloud won't lift, when the adversity is there and there's not anything you can do about it, you go through with sweet resignation to the sovereign will of God. Worshiping Him. Not understanding everything, but trusting Him because you know that he is all-powerful, you know that he's almighty, and you know that he loves you, and he has your eternal good at mind and heart. Now that is shouting material, my friends. Is it not? The great William Cooper said this, Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. These things flow into your life, and God works them together 
for your good. That is for the Christian's good. Do you believe it? Do you sweetly resign to his sovereign will? And I've seen people who do so and their hearts are transformed from a chronic complainer to a chronic worshiper. Hallelujah! There are only two kinds of people in the world, folks. Italians and those who wish they were. You know what I mean? No, I'm just kidding. There are only two people in the world, two kinds of people, Christians and non-Christians. The Christian lives a sincere, but not perfect, life of love, obedience, and good works as a consequence of true saving faith and as led and empowered by the Spirit of God. But the non-Christian does not. He may be an express atheist who denies the existence of God, which is foolish because the evidence is overwhelming. Or he may be an implied atheist who believes in God but lives like the devil. Or he may be a moralistic, therapeutic deist who has been inoculated with just a wee bit of Christianity, just enough to make him immune from getting the true thing. Don't be a moralistic, therapeutic deism. You know why? Because the moralistic, therapeutic deist knows that God is God, but doesn't say God is sovereign. He's a deist. And he thinks it's all about him. Last week we talked about it. It ain't all about you. It's all about him. Amen? That's why we came today. We didn't come for us. We had a job to do this morning. We still do. We're doing it now. We came for him. We came together to glorify him. I can't see him. You can't either. But we are in obedience to his word. We are assembled together to glorify God together. That's our job. And we're doing it together. And it doesn't matter if it's 76 degrees in here. In Christmas Eve, it was 48 degrees in here. I like the 76 more than the 48. Especially when you have a, you know, innkeeper costume on. Remember? Never forget the feeling of the cold air hitting my toes as I was walking up. Listen, the world is making an image. The world is manufacturing an idol and it wants you to conform. It's trying to squeeze you into its mold. 
We had this remark today. We're reading uh, the Christian in complete armor. And there were four guys there this morning whose minds, including mine, were blown by the truth that we were reading from the Christian in complete armor. And we remarked something. We said, look it, it's great, and you never get this in any church around here, because the material is 400 years old. You can't read the drivel that's being pumped out of these publishing houses today, much of which are owned by non-Christian publishers, and expect that you're going to get out of the idolatry that we're all swimming in? No way. you got to get back there. Right? Before historical captivity occurred. There are false gods everywhere. And they want you to worship them. We could be talking about the blatant false gods of North Korea where the ruler there is considered divine and you have to have an image of him in every airport, in every train, in every house. They give you things for you to clean the images off and you are to... uh, Pay respect to those images. There are legal requirements. If you take a picture near one, the whole image needs to be in your photo or it's against the law. It's going on right now in the world. There are an estimate 34,000 statues of Kim Il-sung and his son in North Korea. Some of them called the Towers of Eternal Life. When Kim Il-sung died in 1994, his son declared a national mourning for three years. Only specific government-approved shops can make these images You can't throw them away. You can't deface them. You can't misuse them. And you have to have a lapel on your left side over your heart with their image. In 2012, a 14-year-old girl drowned while trying to save the images from her family's home during a flash flood. So don't tell me that there isn't explicit idol worship happening. But you live in a country that's no less idolatrous. And the world is forcing on you in a totalitarian manner what to think, what to believe, how to act. And the government says you can believe anything you want just as long as it comes in second place. You can have your religion, just let it be second place. And there's going to come a day when they're going to tell you you cannot speak to somebody about the gospel. You can't evangelize. That day is coming in the United States of America. It's already hit the North American uh, continent. It's already in Canada. And it will be making its way south. 
Isn't it funny? We've had years of freedom that we've squandered, haven't we? Has the church really done all that it can and should do in speaking the gospel to others? Soon, I think, the window of opportunity will be closing. And I think it's only then that we will wake up. Public schools, right? You can teach anything in science. Don't teach intelligent design. Some study halls say you can read anything in study hall, just don't read a Bible because that would offend somebody. Really? Really? Now, nobody's being thrown into a fiery furnace yet, but the church has been made silent by the pressure to conform to the idolatry of the age. Secondly, those in Christ stand out and are singled out and are pressured to conform. If you want an easy time of it, just never speak of Jesus. But if you do it publicly, anywhere, you're going to have a rough time of it. Right? We know that. That's why we don't do it. But let me tell you something. This is not something to be fearful of. Why? Jesus said, blessed are you, blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Amen? Amen. It's a lot of it's the opposite of what you think, right? Think about the trials and adversities we're talking about. What does James say? Consider it a cause for whining? No. He says, consider it pure joy. Can you consider your disability pure joy? Can you consider what God has brought you through or what you're presently in as pure joy? That's what he says. Don't be surprised if they persecute you. We don't bow down to false gods. We're different. We are not to be conformed or pressurized. We are to be transformed. Teach your children how not to bow down through the peer pressure of the world. Amen? Because they're getting hammered if they're in a public school. Even a private school. They're getting hammered, folks. You know it, I know it, and most people in America know it. Number three, the one who is faithful rescues his faithful ones in and through the fire. Right? Here they were, and I love this, don't you? This is, this is the key of the whole narrative. They say this, Listen, king, our God, whom we serve, is able to rescue us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. Even if he doesn't heal your cancer, even if you're still in a wheelchair, 
<coughs> even if you still have a heart defect, we will not bow down. Even if it's not the way you think it should be, we won't bow down. We won't conform. Because we sweetly resign to his sovereign will, you see, and trust him. Do you trust him? Do you trust him when the doctor gives you that diagnosis? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? And if you're an unbeliever this morning, you got nobody to trust. You really don't have anybody to trust. You can trust the doctor, the hospital, something, but you got nobody to go through life with, bro. That's pretty sad. I don't know how you do it. You see, their commitment was uncon unconditional. I'm committed. Whatever the way I take, I'm committed. I'm over to the other side. I'm not straddling the fence anymore. That's a long time ago. I am in the fellowship of the unashamed. Amen? Amen. And I'm okay with talking about Jesus in the public square. It's all right. And I'm okay with calling what God calls sin, sin. And calling people to come out of sin, which is not the way you were born. Goodness gracious. Somebody was talking to me yesterday about somebody and they said, oh yeah, I'm a witch. I'm like, if I was talking to that person and saying, no, you're not. You ain't no witch. You're just imbibing on evil. Get out of it before God smushes you. We're talking about that this morning too. You know, there's only so many times that you can reject the Holy Spirit. And I pray that nobody here would quench the Spirit to the point where he withdraws from you or from your family. Be careful of sinning away grace and sinning away the opportunities and sinning away your sanity. There are people who have sinned away their sanity. You realize that? Fearful. Very fearful. As you, believer, burn hotter for Jesus, you will shine brighter. And look at this. These three men are thrown into the fire and they see a fourth man like a son of the gods. Now, some people say that is referring to the pre-incarnate Christ. Some say it's an angel. Either way, God is with you in the furnace. Amen? He's with you in the fire. The Lord Jesus Christ takes us through. He's faithful. He rescues us. 
The system says, bow down to me. We say, no, adversity comes. Jesus brings us through. And so, that's a powerful witness to the world. Think about it. Somebody called up today and said, is there still church? And I was like, I don't mean any disrespect to to whoever that was. And it wasn't anybody here. And I said, you mean because it's 76 in the sanctuary, we're not going to have church? Come on! (laughs) Is this still church? Yeah, man. Look what he went through for you and me. We wouldn't sweat it out for 90 minutes, 75 minutes. We can't give that to the Lord. Be a little uncomfortable. Right? Am I crazy here? Or is it, am I alone? Come on, are you here? Okay, you here? And so, when you show the world the worth of Christ to you by going to church on a 76 degree day by saying to your family no, I can't go to that wedding shower this morning because I go to church on Sunday morning or I won't do this or I won't do that because I believe in Jesus Christ he's my Lord and Savior you show the reality of your faith If they think that your faith is a sham, they'll never believe. That's why a lot of spouses don't come. Because your commitment, sir, your commitment, madam, is so weak, they don't see the reality of it in you. You see? How's your family going to see, think this is real? If you're telling them it's the most important thing in the world, and you're compromising and waffling, they're not going to believe you. Right? Don't you forget, you model commitment to those around you. That's what you do. And so, as we close today, in the short time in the Word, they refused to bow down because they knew God's Word. They knew it was forbidden. And you need to know God's word because the world is ambiguous and your situations become ambiguous and you won't be able to correctly go through them without a knowledge of the word. Secondly, a knowledge of the word is insufficient. If you're not willing to die for your convictions, your true Christian convictions, are you willing to live for them? Right? You can know all kinds of stuff. The Bible says knowledge puffs up. But are you living it? Are you? Are you living it in the dark? Is it real in your family? Or is it just theory? These guys, it was real. Dr. Joseph Song is a Romanian pastor who was called before the communist authorities to answer for his religious convictions in preaching, he expected to be killed. 
So he set his affairs in order, and when he appeared before the interrogating officer, he said, I have to tell you this. First, I'm ready to die. I've put my affairs in order. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. You can kill me, and that'll only make my teachings popular all over Europe. They said, you know what, we're not going to kill you. Now, it doesn't always go like that, does it? Sometimes you get killed. Jan Hus, John Hus, he was caught between the crosshairs. Did you know this, that in history once, the papacy moved to Avignon, France, and there was a French pope, and the Italians were mad, and for 70 years the papacy was located in Avignon, France, and then the Italian pope was in Rome, and they were duking it out, saying, okay, I'm the real pope, I'm the real pope, and they were raising indulgences for the battle between the two popes. Jan Hus, he couldn't stomach it. He was a priest. He said, how can we have a battle, a war, over who is supposed to be the holy leader? Isn't he supposed to be humble? He criticized them. They said, you know what? We're going to cook this man's goose. And his name, Hus, means goose. So the cooking of the goose came from this guy's martyrdom. And they martyred him. They burned him to a stake. And while he was just about to be burnt, he said, there is someone that's coming after me in 100 years who will show you the truth of what is going on here. And almost 100 years later came Martin Luther in 1517. John Hus was right. I like the song. I think you will too. It's called Day by Day. It says this, Help me then in every tribulation, so to trust thy promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation offered me within thy holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take as from a father's hand. One by one, the days, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. Amen? Amen. Providence is God's wise and purposeful sovereignty. The one who is faithful will always rescue his faithful ones through the fire, whether in this life or in the next. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have a right relation to your providence and workings in our lives. Give us wisdom and help us to trust in your sovereign decretive will. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, Amen.